I, uh, the reason why I look refreshed is because I am refreshed. <laughs> I, uh, we, we had a, a vacation this last week and uh, got a chance to get away with uh, our family, Trevor, and uh, also uh, uh, Brianna and Michael, and it was an awesome time just to get away. Uh, we went to Michigan, uh, uh, Douglas and Saugatuck, Michigan, and right up about a third way up on the Michigan Lake side, and uh, we were able to time to get away from everything. Beautiful place, yeah. And uh, so let, I just wanted to remind you of what's coming up in the summer um, here. Uh, we have uh, uh, no equip hours for the next four weeks. And then um, we have five equip hours from the end of July through the end of August. Um, we'll be doing music, uh, movies, and entertainment. Um, we'll be divorce and remarriage. We'll be doing tattoos, piercings, and mod- body modifications, pornography, and gambling. Again, I, I know that a number of those are going to be areas and topics that people will be very interested in. Then we won't meet on Labor Day weekend, and then we will be kicking off our fall with uh, another combined group on financial stewardship. I should probably say financial st- stewardship or planning number two, because uh, uh, George has already done the first part of that, and this will be the kind of the follow-on portion of that. Second, uh, so looking forward to that. And then in the fall, if you can see here, we, have, uh, we will continue with these hot topics on one track in one class uh, in, down the other wing of the church. And then we'll actually be doing a studies in the Psalms as a follow-up kind of to the, to the, to the pulpit ministry um, in, in, in another class, um, both in parallel, like I said before, and then also using that as an on-ramp, if you would, for some of our teachers who are up and coming and giving them an opportunity to be able to, um, to uh, uh, teach in a, in a little bit larger environment and uh, grow their development of their spiritual gift of teaching. So looking forward to that also um, and them getting involved in that. Well, like I said um, earlier, um, our... Uh, our, our topic today is cohabitation, living together outside of marriage. There's an awful lot here that I want to cover, but I'm going to do it more in an overview, and I will not get into all the details except for some places where I think it's appropriate to make sense. My goal in this was to leave behind, and it's our goal in all of these hot topics, to leave behind in your hands pretty much everything you need to know about the topic as much as possible. And so with that, I wanted to begin with um, an interesting uh, cartoon. Um, it's a, a couple of uh, old fogies, right? Um, and it says, uh, it's from my parents. She's opening up a card. You know, it's, a, it's an invitation, right? And she says, it's from my parents. It's an invitation to our wedding. Um, you know, whether you know it or not, uh, cohabitation is not just for younger people, but actually um, we are seeing it explode in, uh, with older couples also. And um, a couple of introductory comments, and if you t- open your pages on your handouts to, pay- to, to page three, that's where we'll begin our time uh, this morning. Um, cohabitation has actually been uh, steadily been on the rise since probably the late 1960s and early 70s. Um, interesting enough, in the last four decades, cohabitation rates have actually uh, grown tenfold, tenfold in the last four decades. That is an unbelievable growth rate. And I don't know about you, but how many people in this room have, have pers- personally know or have been involved with um, somebody who, who has lived in a cohabitating state. Just raise your hand. Okay. 
That is, that is exactly what we have seen, whether it's in the church or outside the church. What, we will, what you will find is that greater than 50% of all married couples have actually lived in a cohabitating state. Church, non-church. Greater than 50% of couples. So that tells me this is a huge issue for us to face. Um, and uh, if I ask you the question, um, if I pulled 10 people off the street right now and told them a couple were living together, um, but they weren't having sex, um, how many people here would believe that? Raise your hand. Okay? So, so some would, some won't. And that fundamentally might be some of the issues that you had as you were going through the questions that we were, I teed up. Um, and we will talk about that particular issue also. Um, but cohabitating relationships literally have gained incredibly widespread um, acceptance today. They are all different things today. Um, you know, uh, domestic relationships, you know, committed relationships, you know, you name it. Um, but, but that's what's out there. So... Um, a couple questions to you, just as we start off here. Um, why are people cohabitating more? Do you know the, question, the answer to that? Uh, are, are they helping or hurting their chances for a successful relationship in the future that's loving? How does cohabitation differ from marriage? Uh, how, what does God have to say about cohabitation? Why do those who cohabitate, interestingly enough, still in most situations seek out the church to be married in? Fascinating. Um, how should we as believers engage, respond, interact with, not with, with people who are cohabitating? Are they believers or non-believers? And uh, um, a, as a result of, of these things, how would you come alongside somebody who's in that situation? Do you have the facts that you need to be able to go at that, both from a sociological perspective and also from a biblical perspective? Do you have a perspective on cohabitation? Well, I hope that, to goodness, by the end of our time together today, you will. As we begin this morning, I want Danielle to uh, stand up and read loudly so everybody can hear um, uh, a letter that was sent by a young lady to her mom to tell her about why she's going into a cohabitating relationship. We have kind of believed that are... Great. Thank you, Danielle. Well, you might be that mom or dad that gets that letter. How do you, how do you interact with that? What if you're a friend? How do you address that? I mean, it all sounds great, doesn't it? Doesn't the, wor- doesn't the world's perspective just, man, that, I, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought it was important kind of to begin with that perspective so that we could know kind of where we're at and where we're going. Um, I wanted to talk about three things today. First of all, I'm going to give you um, an overview of cohabitation, describe what a cohabitating couple is, why co- couples cohabitate, the real consequences of cohabitation that actually mirror the reasons why a person would go into a cohabiting state for the most part. And also, I'll, we won't go through it much, but I wanted to give you the social, social research and the actual facts around cohabitation, which are staggering now that we have three to four decades of outcomes interact. Uh, I want to then go into, if you would, what the scriptures say, some key biblical principles. I want to talk about the marriage as a sacred covenant. And I want to close off our time together with what conclusions we get. So what is a cohabitating couple? If you want to fill in the blanks as we go through here, that'd be great. Um, just a couple comments here is that uh, a cohabitating couple, um, as I'm going to define it, okay, and I'll give you the caveat on this, is two unrelated, unmarried people who set up a household together, sharing a domestic and sexual relationship, just as if they were married. Now, 
two caveats to this. One could be that they, they might be related, thing that we're going to find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay? And number two is that um, uh, sharing a sexual relationship. Again, all of us probably know somebody who is not doing that. At least they say they're not, right? Um, but they still would be cohabitating. Okay? So I'm going to talk primarily because nine, just when we raised our hands a second ago, asked about like, you know, how many people think they are. You know, again, unless you, unless you actually know, the vast majority of us would believe or think that they would be in a, in a some portion of it. Okay? Um, a uh, couple of co- uh, cohabitation is really kind of a sociological term. In four, four years, they used to call it shacking up, uh, living in sin, try it before you buy it, um, that kind of thing. And you've all heard those language, that, 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 th- 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 those statements before. Why would I buy something without trying it out? I mean, that's, that's one of the points the letter uh, gave, right? Um, so some key elements have, there's four key elements in, in cohabitation for the most part that I'm going to talk about. One is domestic relationships. Um, the key issue here is that the goal of cohabitation is not marriage for the most part. It's, it's to keep my singleness. That is a key, critical issue as we go into this study together. Second is intent. My intent is not to marry because if I was going to marry, then I get married. The whole purpose is not to marry. Okay? The third is usually a sexual relationship. And fourth is that this is a, over time. There's time behind this relationship. Um, from the standpoint of key patterns, there's three key patterns we see uh, arise in cohabitating relationships. The first one has nothing to do with marriage. They're literally doing it as an alternative to marriage. So they have no idea, no goal of, of, of getting into a marriage relationship at all. The second is that it is an on-ramp. It's a slow on-ramp to marriage. And as a result of this, they see this as the final stage of dating, and this is where they'll really get to know them and then get married. And then the third, the third stage, the third key pattern we see is literally a test bed. We'll try each other out. If we like what we see, then we'll move forward with thinking about marriage. And I'll talk about thinking about marriage, because literally what I'm going to share with you is that men and women think very differently in this situation. Okay? Um, some key observations is that the nature of cohabitation is a decision not to marry. Um, almost, in, almost always there is a lot of uh, uncertainty and instability in this relationship. Um, it hovers over the relationship. And what you're going to see is that literally goes on and, and follows couples who go from a cohabitating state to a marriage state. Because they can never trust the person, fundamentally. The last one here of observations that I wanted to talk about is when cohabitating relationships end, almost invariably, one of the two parties or both uh, get hurt really bad and painful. I'm going to talk about this in our closing comments as to where the church steps in and how we can be a part of that. Okay? Devastating consequences. Some key characteristics. I love this picture of this book. You want to buy this book? Smart Girl's Guide to Living in Sin Without Getting Burned. <laughs> okay? You, th- you, think, you think that, uh, that that's a good seller? Um, again, m- most char- the characteristics of, of cohabitating relationships almost invariably are a little bit lower income for some reason. I'll, we'll talk about that more later. Um, second is that, that many times cohabitating relationships, couples, if they are asked and, and polled, actually struggle with the choices that they are making more morally. 
Uh, and then the last is that most hold a more liberal view of, um, of uh, premarital sex, divorce, and sexual unfaithfulness. Um, why couples cohabitate? Well, first of all, we've talked about already, to ensure compatibility with uh, a future spouse. That's, that's what they say, ensure compatibility. Second is, literally, ambivalence and, and ambiguity. Most couples enter into a relationship like this just literally, they, they spend a couple nights and they, then, then somebody says to the other one saying, well, you know what, we can save a lot of money. Why don't we just move in together? And there's no conversation about like intent, motive, long term. It's just uh, ambiguous as to why we're in this relationship necessarily. Yeah, some do. Some do. Um, the third is, is what we talked about already, to experience sexual uh, intimacy outside of marriage. Um, the fourth is literally a whole bunch of cultural influence. Uh, influences, but it really comes down to selfishness. It's, it's me-ism. It's, it's like, I, I want what I want what I want kind of thing. Uh, and, and the fourth is really, truly a pragmatic economical issue. I, I mean, if I live together, man, you know, we've just shaved off a whole bunch of money, right? And the last is, um, you know, I've been around a lot of married people, and you know what, it's a, you know, they have problems, and, you know, Marriage, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shackled into it. I can't get out of it. And, you know, I, don't, I saw my parents break divorce, and I don't want anything to do with it. That's, that's the last one here. Makes sense? So some consequences of cohabitation. First is, one of the key things here is, to, is they go into, many co- most cohabitating partners, couples, go into m- cohabitation with this goal of, of figuring out how to choose the right partner. Well, let me, in, in these consequences, I'm going to, quote, break the bubble that exists as to why that would be a good goal, okay? And you can go through all the, all the, uh, all the detailed facts I give you and the sociological research, but the fundamental issue says that whether you, you're cohabitating or you cohabitate and marry, either way, Around 90% of all the relationships that start as cohabitation end up broken. That is amazing. That's like, okay. So, so the fact that I wanted to find my right partner um, and I broke up, you know, one might say, well, see, it worked. <laughs> you know, or whatever. But the devastating consequences that roll out of that are, are immeasurable in, in people. The second one here is that those that do marry are twice as likely to dissolve their relationship, their marriage relationship, within 10 years than those who don't marry in a cohabitating relationship. Um, having children will help. You know, that will help us bond, right? I mean, I mean, let's have a child together and then we're, we're like glue. I mean, we, we have reasons to stay together, right? Uh, well, having a child actually creates a whole bunch more stress. How many people in here know that for, for, for sure? Okay, Isn't marriage and parenting God's anvil to break our pride and selfishness? Is that right? Here. Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Um, 40 to 50% of cohabitating relationships have children, whether it's them or, or others that came into the situation. And 75% of the children born to cohabitating couples will experience termination of their parents' relationship. Cohabitation is an absolute disaster for children. A disaster for children. Check out these, these statistics. Children of unmarried cohabitating biological parents are 20 times more likely to be abused than children of married parents. Wow. 
20 times. 20 times. Okay? And the second one is even more amazing. When a mother lives with a boyfriend who is not the biological father, the children are 33 more times more likely to be abused than the children of married parents. Oh my goodness. Wow. Serves as a huge red flag. Um, legal rights don't exist, really, at the end of the day. I mean, you can't even admit your, your cohabitating partner into um, you know, the hospital. You have no legal rights whatsoever, for the most part. Um, and uh, spousal benefits from employers, usually. Um, the most legal counsel literally is, keep everything separate. <laughs> Don't mix it up because you're gonna the ninety percent you're gonna have problems when you when you break up. That's the counsel from from the legal side. Um, violence cohabitors tend to experience incredibly amount more violence, it, and this goes from everything from the little things, the minor things of pushing, shoving, slapping, to the more major and severe acts of violence, shooting, um, and lots of other things that uh, will. Religion, interesting enough, this is fascinating. Um, cohabitors tend to be less likely to have religious commitments. Um, the key thing here is that when they need it the most, they are running the other way. And that, that's a sad commentary on what they would view as the church in many situations as a, quote, judgmental um, entity um, in our lives. So, key, key point there. Um, as it pertains to men and women... Um, men tend to go into a, commu- uh, a, a cohabitation um, uh, relationship with a lower level of commitment. They tend to be more, quote, serial um, cohabitors. The key thing here, though, is they, they really fear divorce. I don't know whether it's tied to money or other things, but they fear divorce and believe that cohabitating is an easier way and a less complicated way of getting, a, getting, getting by. Women, on the other hand, for many of them are, are, are seeing this as kind of more that on-ramp, that on-ramp to something in the future, which, is, which could be marriage. Um, and, they're, and they're seeing that as a, as, as a relationally stable situation from what they normally engage with. And, um, but the key thing here is that they're usually the ones, almost invariably, that are hurt more in, in the disastrous breakup of, of a relationship. Uh, not always, but most of the time. Um, from a standpoint of marital satisfaction, um, the key thing here is that cohabitors who marry experience lower satisfaction in, their, in a marriage relationship than those that, that don't. Key, big, big point. And, last, and the other two things is they have much higher levels of problems uh, in the relationship, and uh, most of that is due to this kind of narcissistic, individualistic attitude that, that, that is the reason for going into it in the first place. Um, and so, usually the case. Okay? I'm not going to go through these. They're, they're there for you to look through. But my goodness, please do. Please take the time to read through all of these statistics. They are they're earth-shattering in their outcomes. Okay? Um, so let's take our Bibles and uh, turn our Bibles to uh, uh, turn our Bibles to see what the Scriptures say. We're going to deal with two key biblical principles in how we go about looking at cohabitation. Um, uh, the first one here is pure living for the glory of God. 
Pure living for the glory of God. I want to introduce you to um, uh, four key Greek terms as it pertains to purity in the Bible. Okay? The first one is um, what we call porneia or porneia. And uh, Kyle, I'm sure, can be honest on how I say these. <laughs> um, but this is, there's all forms of this. There's lots of uh, uh, different words that are connected with the root of pornea. Um, but uh, it is a broad term that describes premarital sex. So when you think about premarital sex, um, uh, uh, that's pornea. And um, a lot of verses here, but the NASB typically translates it either immorality or um, kind of in some offshoot of fornication. Those are the two words primarily used here. Immorality and fornication. Pornea. The second one that I want to introduce you to is moik. How would you say this? Moikos? Moikos? Moikos. Um, it is used to describe having sex outside of marriage. So this would be a person who is married, but somehow engages in in outside uh, marital uh, sexual relations. And, and interestingly enough, th- this um, uh, comes from a lot, a lot of different verses you can look up on your own, but the NSB usually translate it like we would normally think of this as adultery. Adultery. Uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. So, so get the first two, right? First is having sexual relations before marriage in any way, shape, or form. Okay. The second one is having sexual relations if you're married outside of marriage. Okay. Um, the third one is what we call um, ekatharsia. Um, it's a broad term. It has to do with sexual degradation. Uh, involved in this would also be uh, pornography um, and lots of other kinds of things. Um, but but that kind of uh, sexual sin um, is usually translated as, quote, impurity. Impurity. Okay, so impurity. And the last one that I want to look at is aselgeia. And it is used to denote excess living, lewdness, licentiousness, absence of restraint. It's kind of like um, completely out of control in the, air, in the arena of sexuality. Um, it, another word that the NSB translates is sensuality. Sensuality. Um, and, and it would be used to describe just shameless conduct in general. You could put a whole bunch of stuff underneath this one and call it um, sensuality or shameless conduct. Okay? Make sense? Any questions about that then? Four, outside, uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. Sexual, uh, uh, before marriage, sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, Third one is, is this whole dimension of pornography and, and uh, uncleanness. And the last one is just like out of controlness in this area. Okay? Fair enough? Okay. I want you to turn, if you would, to a key verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Okay? Um, I'm not going to read this whole section for the reason of, of uh, time. But I do want to... Read a couple pieces here. Verse 1. It is actually or commonly reported 
to me, this is Paul saying this to the church in Corinth, that there is immorality. Immorality here is be pornea uh, among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So this is that, there's, what's going on here? Pardon me? A son in a sexual relationship with his mother. What do we call that? Incest. Okay? Incest. So a son, interesting is because it's, the son is part of the body of Christ here. He's a believer, or so-called believer. Okay? And th- because the, the, the scriptures never talk about the mother, it's most likely that the mother's a non-believer. So this is, this is, a, this is wild. This is, and Cor- Corinth, to Corinthianize, meant to corrupt a person by engaging them in, in, in sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, all kinds of different sin. That's what it meant to Corinthianize a person. And that's the, that's the culture that this is coming out of. Okay, And so the situation is, is an ongoing sexual relation between a man who is a professing Christian and a woman who had been his father's wife. They are living in a, what? Cohabitating relationship, along with it being uh, incest. Okay? So the problem is, not only is it incestuous sin, um, which the Bible speaks to in the Old Testament, um, but it's a Christian with a non-believer. And Paul pulls no punches. He calls it what? Sin. He calls it sin. Okay? And uh, everything that's outside of, of, of God-honoring, Christ-exalting uh, sexual relations in marriage, Paul calls sin. These four uh, words we looked at. Um, and that includes all these committed relationships and domestic par- partnerships. That, that Paul's approach was really clear, right? His approach is what? He warns the body. He says in, in verse uh, 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole dump, lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact leavened, for Christ our Passover has been sac- sacrificed. Okay, so he says he strongly says that you don't. If you don't want to address this issue, I'm coming there. You need to address this issue. This is crazy, crazy sin, and you need to address it. He says he strongly admonishes the man to repent and to get out of the relationship and remove that man from the body if he doesn't um, want to please God and, and, and live a pure life. So what's interesting is that's what happens in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, anybody know what happens? Go ahead. Yeah, he did. Interesting enough, they swung the other way too. After he repents, they didn't let him back in and they were like still ostracizing him. And so he has to write to them to saying, look, like I, you know, once he repents, you know, please accept him back in the body and, and, and restore him to fullness in, in the body. Yeah, amazing. So, so church discipline in, in, cha- in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 on this issue, and 2 Corinthians, it's like, yeah, that, that church discipline work, godliness. Okay, let's turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Somebody want to read out loud verse 4? Hebrews 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13 is like the, the author of Hebrews' wrap-up of all of the book of Hebrews, and, he, and he's just like shotgunning a bunch of things that he's like going, like these are huge applicational issues, boom, 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 boom. And one of them comes to verse 4. Somebody read it out loud real uh, for us? Okay, good. So the first thing he says here is that let, the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all. This word honor 
is an interesting word. It's the idea of priceless value. It's also used by, by Paul and others to talk about the blood of Christ and the incredible uh, worth of our faith. And, and um, it, marriage is an, is, an, is an ordinance given to us by literally designed by God. Right? And, and we many times forget that. And he says, this is an ordinance designed by God and it holds a high and lofty place in God's economy as the way in which you, 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 all these things can be realized here. And it is God's model for developing uh, unconditional loving relationships. That's his model for procreation. It's his model for those things there. Okay? Second thing he says here is, um, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, what is marriage bed uh, talking about? What does that mean? Okay, the bed they share together, correct. What does it mean to be undefiled then? The right relationship with others, to not have others that, that, that would share that bed, that that is set aside as pure, holy, wholesome, and that it is a testimony to their togetherness. Right. Correct. Um, it's pure. The third thing he says here is, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So he, he wraps everybody up here. He talks about pre-sexual um, premarital sex, which is fornicators, right? And he talks about outside of marriage sex, which is adultery. He says all y'alls that do that stuff, he says God is going to judge. So God is the one who will judge. How will he do that? He's going to, um, uh, whether you're a believer or non-believer, he's going to allow that person to experience the due outcome of their decisions and the consequences physiologically sociologically, emotionally, spiritually, that will come. It's almost like this dark haze that, for a believer that, that engulfs their soul. Intimacy with God is blown away. God's going to judge that that way. So for a, a believer, you will be entering into a pathway called the discipline of the Lord. And it's not... All of us are in the discipline of the Lord at all times, by the way, and we're going to do a study on that someday. Okay? But, 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 but the piece of discipline that he's doing here is not keeping us from sin. The piece of discipline here is like loving us enough to, to do whatever it takes in our life, bring us back into a right relationship with him. Okay? And then the last one here is for non-believers, unrepentant sinners are going to experience not only just the due, due outcomes of their consequences here, but, but also they're going to experience the wrath of God too, according to this verse. Okay? So, um, Ephesians 5.3, um, would somebody read that out loud up there? Right? Okay, so here, again, what are these, three, these words here? Again, immorality and impurity. Those are the key words we talked about earlier, right? And so he says, conduct yourselves in such a way that, the, that, that no one could throw something on, your, uh, on you um, that isn't true. Now, I ask you, um, these, are, these are key things that talk about pure living for the glory of God, okay? Um, one more is John 4. Anybody remember the, Samar- the woman at the, at the well, right? And uh, uh, she was looking for what? She was looking for, well, she was looking for water. <laughs> she, she, she didn't know anything about that living stuff, okay? <laughs> she didn't want water. I came in to get some water, okay? Uh, so, so what did Jesus engage her with? 
You know, there's there's some water. There's water that lasts, that satisfies your soul, that 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 quenches your thirst. Have you ever have you ever tasted it? I'm the one who can give it to you. Um, but when he engages that woman, um, she's a non-believer, right? Um, does he first of all? I mean, he 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 by asking questions illuminates that. Uh, uh, Hey, I saw that uh, you and this other guy have the same address and the same phone number. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that what he said? Right? In so many words. And, and, and he's like, well, no, 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 no. We're, you know, we're not, what, married. I'm, he said, right. Neither were the other ones that came before you, right? So they were in a cohabitating relationship, weren't they? How did Jesus address it first? First was what? Need for living water, salvation, the need to be cleansed, the need to know God, the need to have a why behind the what and how and where and when. That's what we need to share with with non-believers is the satisfying, soul-satisfying, you know, uh, quenching um, Christ, who is exalted above all of all, and and will satisfy every desire that you have. That's what he did here, right? Second is he, de- he you know, went on. When we have the reason why to live, then we'll do the right things because God will be want to be. Um, so the second area I want to look at is instead of pure living, I want to look at wise living. Wise living for the glory of God. Wise living for the glory of God. And I want to give you three principles underneath wise living. First is believers should do everything to please Christ. Fundamentally, you get this, everything will go well for you. My goal in my life is to please and honor Christ. Period. Whatever that means, it was like my, I told my son, you know, I said, like, Trevor, I mean, I, I can give you all the, all the things I'd like for you to, how you want to live, right? But, but at the end of the day, you know what? I just want to give you one thing. Do whatever you want, but make sure you please God with it. <laughs> you can do that, then let that be your guide on how you live your life. And I give that to you guys as younger younger men and women also, as a key thing as to how you can live your life. Okay? The second thing is, believers should strive to understand and reduce and eliminate temptation. Now, back to our earlier conversation. You know, one out of ten people who are living together aren't having sexual relations. How does this one address that? Okay, one, the temptation of the fact that it's there is, is, is providing um, fuel. Let's put it that way. Okay, there's some flames maybe possibly being, being... Now, the woman may not think that way, but let me tell you, the guy probably does. Okay, okay so, th- so there's the possibility of... Te- you, you don't want to walk down the cliff like right next to the edge. You want to stay way away from it. So that's point number two. Okay? Point number three is that believers should maintain a God-pleasing, Christ-exalting public testimony. So here's where it comes in, right? If you're a believer and you're living with somebody who, who whether they're a believer or non-believer, and you, you, know, you know in your heart you're not having uh, sexual relations, and you're in a cohabitating state, just know that most people, whether you like it or not, are probably not thinking that that's what's happening. Okay? And you are not being a great testimony for Christ. And I encourage you, get out of the relationship. Get out. Pure living, wise living. Okay? Let me give you the third, third point, which has to do with marriage as a sacred covenant. 
finding a covenant uh, to establish a sacred agreement where people bind themselves to a total commitment to fulfill certain obligations. And the crazy thing, the, the, the amazing thing here is that the, the, the inaugurator and the enforcer of this covenant in, in, in history and the Bible has meant to be God. God is the one who, who, who puts it in place. God is the one who's the enforcer. He's the one who acknowledges, along with the people who happen to be rep- present there, of what the vows were that made that, that agreement. Okay? Cohabitors don't enter into cohabitation as a covenant. We need to come back to the point of what a covenant is. Okay? Um, so, second is the elements that comprise a covenant are five, five things. Intent, it's a new relationship. Two, obligations. There's things that are, we're obligated to in the, in the marriage relationship. Third is vows. Solemn words are, are expressed to one another. Those are commitments that are being made both to each other in the presence of witnesses, but most of all in the presence of God. Okay? And a sign is usually given um, to ratify that agreement. And that um, in doing so, um, uh, uh, from a marriage perspective, covenant, uh, the one flesh uh, relationship was meant by God to be this incredibly exalted purpose of the physical intimacy and to consummate the end of singleness and to begin and inaugurate this this one flesh relationship that exists. And so as we think about marriage, you can see as the marriage relation, uh, wedding ceremony, you can see these things all part of this process uh, here. I'm not going to go through these verses in detail here, um, but let me just mention them. There's um, Malachi, which basically says, um, I hate divorce, um, and that you are, in, you are engaged with your, the wife of your youth in a covenant relationship. Okay? Ezekiel, um, you've entered into a covenant with you. Okay? Proverbs 2.17 uh, leaves the companion of your youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Okay? Um, Genesis 2.23 and 24, they enter into a one flesh relationship. They were single before and now they are married um, in that way. And so they leave their father, leave their mother, and they become one flesh. Um, Mark 10.9, let no man separate what God has put together. And so some key observations of these verses in closing this portion of our time is that marriage is a sacred covenant. It's sealed with a public wedding vow, right? Uh, That helps people keep their commitment even when they don't feel like it. And if you're married in this room, has there... Uh, how many people in this room have, 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 have at one time in their relationship thought that, man, this is hard. I wonder if I can really, put, uh, really, really do this. Raise your hands. I have. Yeah. But, but what brings me back is my desire to please God and my desire to know that this is God's tool in my life to change and transform me, Christ. That's His purpose. And to be a, a testimony to those around me that, that we can navigate tough and difficult things for the, for the glory of God. The last one here is without a bond, there's no glue. And cohabitating relationships enter into their relationships without that glue. No wonder it doesn't work. So wrapping it all up, um, some conclusions real quick. The vast majority, over 90% of rela- cohabitating relationships do not last. 
Why? Because they don't, they're not built on God's principles for, for sustaining relationships of love. Period. Uh, it appears that on all counts, the risks of going into a cohabitating relationship, not just whether it's going to end 10% only last, but all the problems that come with it are just huge. And they're nowhere uh, worth the pragmatic economic advantages. And I'm saying this more from a non-believer's perspective because obviously there's other components here too, right? Um, from a practical application in our lives as believers, real important, live pure and live wise lives. Um, secondly, um, educate, teach, and model a high view of marriage as a sacred covenant. Really important for us. Really important for us. It's crucial that we do this. Our marriages, for those that are married in this room, for those that aren't married in this room, are testimonies of God's incredible grace. Um, let me tell you, we couldn't do it without the grace of God. There's no, no way... We couldn't do it without the cross. We couldn't do it without the power, enabling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, but as we engage non-believers, um, first of all, I think it's really important that, that uh, we gracefully speak the truth in love. We share with them these facts. I mean, understand if they're going into one, this is what's ahead of you if you're a non-believer. This is what you have to look forward to or not. My most important thing I ask people in this kind of setting, want. What do you really want? What do you want out of this relationship? What do you want? And that usually helps me understand how to come alongside them. And the last thing I ask them is, you know, I mean, why are you going into this relationship that way? If I can get out of them, why? Well, it's economic, or it's, it's you know, this, or it's that. I know now how to come alongside them and help them think this through. And you know what? If a person's already been in a cohabitating relationship and, and they're coming to Christ, that's the last one here. It's, it's awesome. Leverage the opportunities. These opportunities show up in many different ways. I'll give you two of them. One happens to be when they, they want to get married. They come to a church. We as pastors, we as elders, we as, as, as individuals need to take the time to come alongside them and have them think about what is marriage. It's a sacred covenant. You know? Have them think about the problems that they're entering into. But, but most importantly, according to John 4, what? Administer living water, <laughs> right? Last but not least is there's lots of pain when, when they just break up and want to come alongside. Okay? So roundtable debrief. Uh, Kyle, you want to come on up? Um, so let's go through these and uh, answer them and also take your questions in closing if we could. Um, how do we want to do this? Not necessarily true or false. It's all the ones that you agree. Yeah. So let's just, let's go through and do them true or false, and then they'll give them a, give them a, an answer. So cohabitation is a growing social issue, not just in the United States. Uh, cohabitation with seniors growth phenomenon. Fifty uh, percent of Americans believe there is nothing morally wrong. Has been cohabitating and now begins uh, living together is okay. But back, back to that one though. If if a person's a believer, um, that probably would, would be sped up. But you don't you don't do church discipline on a non-believer, yeah. right? I think it's important to say I think, that. Yeah. I, I think one of the key things that you brought this out really well is that you, we, we, like, again, uh, living together is okay as long as... Why? Yeah. Okay, it's back to that wise living for the glory of God, right? It's not the pure living. That, that's supposedly taken care of, but the, the issue is the wise living, right? Those in biblical times, 
didn't have a category for cohabitation. <laughs> adultery. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Precisely. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> or fornication. The Bible really is quite silent on the subject of living together before or outside of marriage. Uh, so these are the questions that you guys brainstorm together, but how do you, what do you feel might be the reasons why people decide to cohabitate before or outside of marriage? Up just a tad. <clears throat> is she a believer or a non-believer? Non-believer, okay. Yeah. All right. And I think what you point out is really good there is that there are legitimate feelings, legitimate, I mean, like, they're, they're, what they're feeling is, is real, right? So we can't look at them and say, okay, you need to not feel that anymore. The problem with sin is that it's doing what a lot of times sin is this uh, right thing in the wrong way. So it's not, that li- it's not that a man or woman living together is bad. It's we need to go about it in the right way. Um, any other reasons that you guys thought of? It's our financial man, so I'm just going to say, <laughs> paid for my undergraduate education at Booty Bible Institute, so make sure that happened, I'm going to believe you. Um, yeah. Um, any other thoughts? That's just a pain. Like, I live, my roommate's pain of like, okay, well, it'll be fine, you know. But um, So brainstorm what you feel might be the consequences people might experience habitating. I'm, and I'm blown away as far as content yep, three times more likely yeah. if it's a lot of the students that come to us and probably a lot of the kids that were connected. So the consequences, it's easy to think of the consequences. Just to build on that, you know, <clears throat> we talked earlier about the fact that greater than 50% of all the people who are married in this church, okay, just like any other place, um, come from a cohabiting relationship. So those marriages are at risk mm-hmm. to all of the, to challenges that are not the same as those who who didn't cohabitate before marriage. And those, we have to minister to those people and come alongside them in those spaces as no consequences. The next question is, do you believe that the Bible teaches that it is a sin to live together and not be married? Um, can we, the Bible teaches it's a sin to marry, and we can move next question. is actually really, really insightful. I'd actually like to maybe... Can. Well, let me be the instigator here. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't think it does say this. I don't think it says... That uh, a Bible teach. That what are your three sentences in response to your friend? Like, if, like you said, your friend. You know, well, for any of us, you know, like what are? I mean, I mean at the end of the day, the, the the point here is that the Bible doesn't say not to live together. The Bible says, don't have sin. It gives us the caveat behind the scenes that says have wise living because no. this is what people think, right? But 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 that that was a little testy question to kind of poke at some things, right? Because um, our judgmental attitude will say this, and, and it really doesn't say that. Um, now, we can get to the same issue addressing purity and wisdom. Right. So what you're saying is there's not a sentence I Correct. can find exactly. that'll say, thou shalt not exactly. live with someone you're not married to. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. That's the caveat. That's the caveat. That's the caveat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the next one is so you're counseling a person or a couple who just come into come to Christ, they're new believers, happen to be cohabitating. How important is this issue for you? Yep. Our counsel for, for a person, if they're not married yet, and they are cohabiting, they come to Christ, would be uh, to separate. Yeah. And and they may be planning on getting married, right? But we want them to separate, establish purity, establish a foundation of success that is biblically based, mm-hmm. and then go through counseling, premarital counseling, you know, to, to work through those things, and then be able to see Christ exalting, God honoring marriage because of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My my conversation with with a counselee that I've been in, been working with was to do just this. You know, and what what I said is it will it will do what you're saying. It will expose the true intentions of the heart prior to marriage, and that's what happened. And interesting enough, it it allowed for. Uh, them to not go forward. And, um, 
add to this, this is one of those times where we need to learn as the church to put our money. We're asking someone separate, yep. maybe yep. them financially. Yep. So, like, are we saying separate and you can come within my base? Correct. You know, like separate. We're going to find you someone to live with for the next six months Huge while we issue. make this happen. Huge issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Huge issue. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Amen. Just can't think of an, a, a, another kind of an area. Um, I mean, there's other ones, but this is this is a huge one for the church to be ministering to people and really come. Yeah. Many of the and yeah, yeah, it is. And and the other thing too is, as a non-believers, most of them, these up-and-coming ones at least, have no categories for this. Right. The no categories. They need to be taught. Um, you know, it's after yep. we should probably wrap it up. Do you think? Pardon me. Sure. Good. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, just in going deeper, um, here's a n- bunch of different resources if you want to really try to look at them closer. I really recommend th- the last one here, um, which is this book that uh, uh, we read from here. It's called uh, uh, Living Together, A Guide to Counseling on Married Couples, uh, Jeff and, and Gotham. Uh, really great book. So um, in, in closing, maybe Kyle, you want to close us in prayer? Yeah. Lord, would you just uh, be with us as we go into the service now? Um, or whether we're listening here in person to our hearts and actually equip us for ministering to people in our lives um, with gentleness. May we speak the truth in love to believers and model you Jesus, in offering first the living water to offering second the way to repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord, we're just thankful for this time. I ask that you would uh, bless us and, and firm these. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.